Good morning, Servants Church. Great to be with you guys this morning. Thank you so much for, for being here. Luke chapter 5 is where we are. We're going to finish the chapter today. And if you remember in Luke, uh, starting actually back in Luke chapter 4, if you remember, this is a section of Luke where Luke wants to show us Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And he wants to focus on this ministry in this area because it was in this ministry that Jesus showed himself to be the Messiah. How he did ministry showed that he was indeed God's chosen king, and as God's chosen king, how God's kingdom is going to come to this earth. The whole of scripture, the whole, uh, from Genesis through Revelation, all of scripture is about how God in his creation has created an earth and he in heaven is going to come together and heaven and earth are going to become one one day. That he will reign in this earth. And so when Jesus the king comes the first time, he inaugurates that kingdom. When he comes again, he, he completes that kingdom. We look forward to that day. But what we're going to see is in this first section, we've been talking about how Jesus is now gathering together his disciples, the first of his disciples, gathering together this kind of new community of God's people. And, and in the midst of this, we see right away, very, in the very beginnings of this, where there's controversy about how he does ministry, about how Jesus the King does ministry. It conflicts with the, well, the religious leaders of his day. And it's important for us to see this because we read these kinds of things in the Gospels and we go, yay, Jesus, boo, Pharisees. And in doing that, what we forget is often there's a Pharisee in us. We can often be the kind of people that, well, that we have our own priorities, our own agenda, and those things conflict with what Jesus' agenda is for the world, how God wants to bring in his kingdom into our lives in the world. And so we want to look at this. We want to look at some of these controversial priorities that Jesus brought to the forefront. Some of these things may not feel initially as controversial to us, but hopefully we'll let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do to make sure that our priorities are lined up with his. So let's pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 5. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judah, I'm sorry, Judea and Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That's kind of an odd phrase that Luke would use. The power of the Lord, isn't anytime Jesus around, he can heal? Well, yeah, often we see this in scripture. So why this phrase? This is why I think Luke wants us to see that there's the issue of happening here. When Jesus does what he's going to do, we're going to see in this narrative, that the issue here is not about him not having the ability to heal. But the issue in this narrative is not so much about ability, but about priority. What's the most important thing to Jesus? It's also important to recognize what's happening here. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law or scribes, they probably were, were hearing of Jesus over the year or so uh, leading up to this. But also, if you remember from last week, when Jesus heals the leper, what does he tell the leper to do? Go show yourself to the priests. And as he shows himself to the priests and says, Jesus of Nazareth did this, he healed me, the religious leaders are going, okay, we've got to check out this Jesus guy. We've got to look at this so, supposed rabbi from Nazareth and, and look a bit closely at him. And so what Jesus is doing here, he is doing it in a lot of ways for their for their instruction. 
He wants them to see something as well. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing uh, uh, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of, uh, in the, in, into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is, a, this is a, a story that we know really well, and so sometimes we can forget how amazing this is. If you can think about it, Jesus is probably, we know from the other Gospels, he's in Capernaum. He's in a house that's probably a rich, a wealthy person's house that was kind of his base. He's teaching. He's probably been teaching for a while. The, 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 leaders of, the religious leaders of his day are there listening to this, probably a bit in awe of, of how good he is at teaching. And then what happens? The, the, these, these four friends, we know again from Mark's gospel, there's four friends carrying this paralyzed man. And these four friends bring Jesus here. And you can imagine them getting to the door and seeing it's so crowded, people are kind of trying to peer through the door to look inside the house, trying to, to listen in. But they're so determined, they know, okay, if we can get our friend in front of Jesus, he will be healed. They're sure of this. They know he's the one who can do this. And, and even think about the, the paralytic, the, the paralyzed man himself. He's got to say, okay, I'm cool with this, right? Not that he could have fought him off, but still, he's got to say, I'm cool with this. You can take me here, risk people being freaked out that I'm going in the midst of them. I, I'm going to trust that this is the best thing because if anyone can heal me, it's this Jesus guy. So they get there, it's too crowded, they can't do So they take what was normal in houses that day, outside steps to a roof patio kind of an area. And they get up there, and they, they literally start tearing off the roof, the clay uh, and, 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 the, and the bits of, of, of sticks and palm branches, and they peel through the roof, and then these four guys lower them down. You can imagine, you can hear them grunting. You know, they're sweating. There's, there's, you know, all the dust is coming down into the, into the room. I can imagine people kind of going, what is going on? What are these guys doing, you know? And as they do all this, they're looking up this guy's, and I can imagine, can you imagine the face of the paralyzed guy? How sheepish would you feel if you were being lowered down into the room, right? And so, so there he is, he's kind of going, well, yeah, I'm just taking a chance, you know? And they're lowering him down, and I can imagine everyone kind of going, what are these guys doing? And I imagine this, Jesus smiling ear to ear. Because the Bible says really clearly that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the inverse of that is when we believe, God is pleased. And so they're lowering him down, and they, they make it. They, they see the, the smile of Jesus' face. They're going, it's going to work. It's going to work. And Jesus says, man, you're forgiven. <laughs> and they're like, uh, that's not what we were looking for? Now, it could be that they knew they needed this as well. We, we don't know. The, the Gospels don't really tell us what's going on in their hearts other than Jesus sees that they're acting in faith. And the idea of their faith here is not just the four friends. It is, it is probably the, man, the paralytic man himself. But, but what's happening here is that, that there's, there could be a situation where his paralysis was actually connected to his own sin. Now, most of the time when we have these kinds of diseases or sicknesses. It has nothing to do with our individual sin. But sometimes it does. So it could have been that. But more likely what this is, is Jesus is wanting to show to the religious leaders there that his priority is not healing people in the here and now. His priority is forgiveness. Providing for, offering, giving forgiveness. That's his priority. 
Now, here, here's the thing that, that, that really blows me away. He, Jesus is not here. He's not ignoring that they had gone through such a great effort. He's not belittling what they'd done to bring their friend to Jesus. In the same way, Jesus isn't belittling you who have been praying for years for friends to come to faith. He's not belittling you. Or for you to be healed of something or delivered from something. He, trust me, he's not ignoring those efforts. But he's actually, listen, this is the thing we have to get, he's actually doing more than they expected, not less. He's doing what they need more, what this man needs more, than even physical healing. But he does this, and what happens? Of course, the religious leaders aren't too happy about this. Look at verse 21. It says in verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive but uh, sins but God alone? Now, their theology is, is right. Their idea about the fact that only God can forgive sins, that's absolutely correct. But their accusation is wrong. He's not blasphemy. If Jesus was only a man, it would be blasphemy. But he's more than that, isn't he? It's not blasphemy. And so what's interesting here is Jesus knows their thoughts. The, the indication from all the gospel accounts is that they didn't say this out loud. Maybe they whisper it to themselves. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. And so what does he do? He questions their thinking because he wants to prepare them for what he's about to do. Look at verse 22. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk. Rise and walk. Now that's a, a legitimate question. It's an interesting question, actually, isn't it? Which is easier to say. If I say to you, Your sins are forgiven, there's no requirement of proof, is there? Uh, I, you, can, I, you, might, you might think, well, okay, I guess I am forgiven, or no, I don't believe you, I'm not forgiven. But there's no way to kind of prove or disprove that necessarily. But to say, rise and walk to a paralyzed man, well, there's got to be proof. And so when he asks this, well, which is easier to say? You're kind of bothered that I said, your sins are forgiven, but isn't it easier to say? No, they're, they're right in their theological presumption. They're right that only God can forgive sin. They just don't realize who's standing right before them. So then in verse 24, what happens? Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and was picked up, or and he picked up, what had been lying on, what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with us, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You see, here's, here's what Jesus is doing. He's not, or here's what he's not doing. He's not changing his priorities. He's not going, Oh, you didn't want forgiveness? Oh, okay, I'll do the, the, the healing. Boom, there's the healing. Is that better? Are you happy now? He wasn't changing his priorities. He was establishing his authority. The priority for Jesus was that people would know their need for forgiveness and how absolutely willing God is to forgive. How God has provided for forgiveness through his very son. He wanted them to know that was his priority. All he's doing with this healing, in fact, really, a lot of the miracles that Jesus did, they were simply to be 
either a, a, in a sense a, a, a literal supernatural metaphor for what he was teaching or a way to underscore his authority of who he is or a foreshadowing of what would be the case when he comes back. This is so important for us to understand. See, the reason Jesus can say your sins are forgiven and the reason the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes thought, okay, only God can forgive sins is because of what the scripture teaches. Listen, in Psalm 51.4, here's what David says in his psalm of repentance. He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's funny because we will admit we're not perfect you know, most of us are humble enough to admit that we're not perfect. We make mistakes. Uh, many of us even are, are, are willing to say we're sorry to people we care for. If we've hurt somebody we care for, we say, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't want to do I, I Forgive me for doing that. Most of us value relationships enough to do that. But it's rare that we recognize that, that, that we've actually sinned against God. It's the rare thing. Even as those, who, those of us who confess to be believers. We can be so slow to recognize that even when we think our sins are only horizontal, they are ultimately always vertical. They're always against God. They're always an offense to him because they disobey his command that he gives to us to love others more than we love ourselves. Now, now here's, the, here's the amazing thing. Even though we sin against God like this constantly, He's shown himself time and time again in both Old Testament and New Testament to be a God who's slow to anger, quick to show mercy, quick to forgive. And so Jesus is saying, this is my priority. It's forgiveness over healing. Now let's talk about how we, we should respond to this truth. How should we respond to this priority of Jesus? Let me ask you a, a serious question. What seems more important to you, the healing of your here and now suffering or the forgiveness of and freedom from sin. Now, don't get me wrong. It, it, there's nothing wrong uh, with us for wanting uh, to, to have uh, a release or wanting to be free from our here and now suffering. We, we should expect, though, a level of disappointment this side of heaven, right? And it's, it's even more important that we recognize we should do what is in our power to relieve the suffering of others. Should we not? In Jesus' name? Absolutely. But the priority of Jesus is not just to try to relieve suffering. It's to relieve the very cause of suffering, which is our sin against God. And when he frees us from the penalty of that sin and then begins to free us from the power of that sin, it's then and only then we have hope that one day we are going to be free from the presence of sin when the Lord comes back. This is what forgiveness is about. So how, how should this motivate our prayers? Which motivates your prayers more? Think about how you pray when you pray. God, help me. Take rid of the suffering. Now, we should pray that way. God wants us to cast all our cares on him. God wants to pour out our hearts before him. We need to be honest and open about, I hate this, I don't like this, I want this to stop. That is good and right. But you know what Jesus taught us to pray? Forgive us our sins as you've forgiven us. Lord, the most important thing is that we're right with you. If we're right with you, we'll be right with each other. We'll, we'll work out the suffering bits. This is what he teaches us to do. He prioritizes forgiveness over healing. Next priority, look at the next scene, verse 27. 
After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, uh, he rose and followed him. Now, I want to unpack just how bad tax collectors are because none of us like tax collectors, let's be honest. But at the end of the day, we don't despise tax collectors at all compared to the way they did then, and there was reasons for it. But it's important that we recognize here that Jesus, in, in what we're going to see, is him prioritizing sinners over the religious. In doing this, he's not ignoring their sin. He calls this tax collector, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. In fact, in fact, maybe I should say this too. It's important that we recognize that though Jesus pursues sinners, he doesn't follow them. He calls them to follow him. This is important. But what does he do? How does, he, how does Jesus call people to follow him? He does so through relationship. Look at verse 29. And in verse 29 it says, And Levi, this, this, this tax collector, made a great feast, and there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Probably the only guys who would come to his house for a meal. And the Pharisees and scribes uh, grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you might not recognize this, but that, uh, in that day, often when someone who was uh, well-known or had some prestige was invited over to your house to eat and you were wealthy enough to, to have a lot of people to your house to eat, you would eat in the open courtyard so that everyone could pass by and see what was going on. And especially if you wanted to invite, like, say, a rabbi over, someone important who would share something, because it was kind of like a way to be, uh, in a sense, generous to, to the the. the uh, the neighborhood, because you're like, listen, you can't eat our food, but at least you can hear our conversation. Yeah. Sounds a bit snobby, doesn't it? But that was what they did in that culture. And so in doing so, the Pharisees would have been on the outside going, what are you doing? How are you eating with these people? Now, now this sounds so snobby. Like, why are you so strict, Pharisees? Why are you so concerned? And we have to recognize the Pharisees are not being too strict in their judgment. They're really not. And most people who were people who wanted to walk with God, they would have probably thought, yeah, that does seem a bit odd that you're hanging out with tax collectors. Because here's the thing about tax collectors. They didn't just collect taxes from poor people, which was a burden. They got rich through collecting taxes. Because the Roman government would give them a quota, and they would collect over that quota, and whatever they had over that, they kept for themselves. And so if they were wealthy, that meant they were taking this from the people. Not only that, these tax collectors usually were Jewish tax collectors collecting for an oppressive Roman government. They were despised. These were like, it, probably the, the closest thing in our culture that we'd feel the same kind of, the, the, you know, the same kind of ugh about would be uh, the, the, the guys who run these massive corporations and they, they basically, their companies go under and they still get multi-million dollar bonuses. And then they invite Jesus for dinner, and he's like, sure, I'll have dinner with you. And you go, what? Why would you eat with them? They're ripping us off. Our pensions are gone because of them. They're destroying our economy. This is how we would feel. We'd be like, what is the deal? And yet Jesus eats with them. Why? Because he does this through relationships. See, the problem with the Pharisees was not that they were being too strict. It, it's, it was understandable why people would go, not them, Lord. It was that they were being too limited in their mercy. There's, it wasn't that their standards were too, too high 
about morality is that they were too low when it comes to the mercy of God. They didn't realize how far God's mercy goes, how willing God is to bring people into relationship. See, this is important for us to understand. Jesus here is not affirming their corruption. He's affirming his love for them. There's a huge difference. Now, now, this is his priority. He prioritized sinners over the religious. This is, don't see this as believers versus non-believers. Well, this will become clearer as we move through Luke's gospel. This is not a dichotomy of believers versus non-believers. That's a false dichotomy when it comes to how we show love. This is about religious people versus sinners and who should we hang out with and who we shouldn't. Now, I'll be the first to say this is really hard to put into practice, to know how, how to do this. In fact, listen, Paul talks about this when he wrote to the church in Colossae. Uh, this is, he was actually doing ministry with Luke when he did this. He, he wrote, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time, of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Can you see how Paul's advice is? Well, man, you really need wisdom. You really need to know, God, how do I walk skillfully with this individual? And it's got to be on an individual basis. And you've got to make sure that your speech is gracious. In other words, you're patient in how you communicate. You're longing to model and communicate God's grace to people. But you also got to make sure it's seasoned with salt. You don't want to give the false impression that God doesn't care about our sin. That's not true either. Man, how do we do this? It really does take some wisdom that God's Spirit has to give us on a case-by-case basis, doesn't it? But Jesus had that perfect wisdom. Now, now, notice too, when the Pharisees asked this, again, with their not too strict mor- morality, but their way too limited mercy, in verse 31 it says, Then Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of, phys- of a physician, but those who are sick He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus isn't kind of saying to them, you guys are righteous, you're okay. Because it's not so much that these guys are righteous, but that they're self-righteous. That's really the issue. In fact, it's interesting. In fact, it's important that we recognize what Jesus is saying to these guys. Really, what he says to the Pharisees in answering them, he's saying, listen, do you think you're righteous? Because if you think you're righteous, you're not going to want me. If you think you're righteous, if you think you're religious enough, you're not going to see your need for me. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But this was the the mistake that the religious leaders made. This was the mistake that most religious Jews made. Listen, Paul again talks about this in Romans chapter 10. Listen, Paul says, For I testify about them, that's about Israelites, that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, the mistake that religious people make in general, that Israel made specifically, is, you know what? I'm going to just work harder to do my best, and then God will owe me something. God will be obligated to accept me in heaven. God will have to say, I tip my hat to you, well done you. He'll have to do that. That is crazy foolishness. That's not knowledge. And Jesus is saying, if you're stuck in that religious place, guess what? You're never going to see your need for me. 
Folks, this is why it's so important that we as Jesus followers have real relationships with those who are not. And that those who are not see the difference between religion and what it means to know and follow Jesus. It's so crucially important. In fact, let's talk about this. How do we we respond to this priority of Jesus? Well, let me ask you a question. If you are a Jesus follower and you don't really have real relationships yet with non-Christians, why not? Why not? If you you follow Jesus, why don't you have real relationships with non-Christians, with not yet Christians? Now, the first thing that came to my mind when I was writing this question down, and, you know, I do apply this stuff to myself, I promise, was thinking like, well, it's really hard to do during times of lockdown. And that's true. It is hard to do. But it's not really an excuse, is it? We still can move towards people. But it's amazing. It's amazing how many believers I know. And it's, in fact, uh, here's what I've noticed too. You tell me if you think this is this has been your experience if you, or you've seen the same thing. That oftentimes when people come into the church, when they first come to faith, they want all their friends to know. They're like Levi. You've got to come see this Jesus guy. Hey, I'll make a meal and we'll let him come speak. It'll be great. Then after a while, you're kind of used to going to church. You get used to Christians. And Christians are great. They love you and they feed you food, and this is my experience as a young, single 18-year-old, they feed you. That made me so happy. <laughs> they feed you food, and they, they treat you well, and they, they're concerned about your life, and you feel like, this is great. Mike's like, I have this huge family. It's wonderful. And then you get comfortable. And then if someone comes in who's a bit salty and a bit like, wow, what about this? And I don't understand. Why do you guys do that? And you're kind of like, you're kind of messing with my vibe, man. I was liking it. I was liking this. And you're kind of, don't do that. And we stop having real friendships with unbelievers. Well, let me ask you this. If you are a Jesus follower, how would you, and you do, and you, assuming now you do have friendships with not yet Christians, how do they perceive your relationship with them? Do you, do you, if you're a Jesus follower, okay, now listen to me. If, you, if you're listening to this now and you do follow Jesus, and you guys here, if you follow Jesus and you're listening to this, do your not-yet-Christian friends look at you and go, they're nice, but I'm obviously just a project to them? Or do they look at you and go, oh, okay, um, yeah, they're, they're nice enough people, but they don't really care about me? Or, and this is a scary bit, well, yeah, they're cool, but there's no difference between me and them. I don't see any difference between the way they live and the way I live. These are important things, aren't they? Because Jesus prioritized sinners over the religious. Why? Because he wants people to know him. And when we prioritize our own religious deeds over sinners, we have a different priority than Jesus. Now, I want to also talk to you guys. If if you're not yet a Christian, if you're watching this, maybe because a friend encouraged you to do this, or you're just kind of tuning in because you just happen to tune in, if you're not yet a Christian, But let me ask you a serious question. How have your Christian friends, how have they helped your perception of Jesus? And how have they confused your understanding of Jesus? You know, I I got saved. Many of you guys know my story. I I became a Christian at 18 years old from a completely non-religious home. Um, Loved my family to bits, but there was no God in the mix. And... uh, 
raised by my dad and three older brothers, it was like testosterone overload. And so all the things that the, what's the term here, Jack the Lad does, that's what I was involved in. And I remember when I was in high school, so I'm about 17, 18, this is American high school, that there was this group of Christian girls, and they were really cute. And so I'd, flute, I'd flirt with these, these, these uh, Christian girls. And sometimes they'd flirt back, and, and they were, to be fair to them, they were chaste. You know, they, they only, they'd only kind of let me flirt so far. But they did love the attention. So my thought was, they're cute, socially awkward girls who appreciate my attention. And then there were the Christian guys. And no offense to my high school, but most of the Christian guys I knew, except for one guy. One guy was not this way. He was a great guy. Uh, but the rest of these guys, they were the nerdiest guys I'd ever seen. In fact, they, they were into this, this Christian heavy metal band named Striper. If you know who Striper is, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and this, the, the band Striper had this album called To Hell With The Devil. And so this guy, this, I, I know. <laughs> It's, it's worthy of laughter. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. You can't make this stuff up. And, and, and I used to make fun of these guys because they wore the T-shirt. I'm like, oh, to hell with the devil. <laughs> and these guys were so afraid of me, they wouldn't even make eye contact with me. Now, I was a bit of a jerk before I was a Christian. I'm still a jerk sometimes now. So in one sense, I don't blame them for being afraid of me. But at the same time, it was like, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I was so desperate for something true. Absolutely desperate. Empty. I had been empty for so long. Pursuing things that Jack the Lad pursues. I had been doing that for almost four years by the time I was 17 years old. And I was absolutely empty, and if they would just turn around and say, the devil's real, and he's the one blinding your eyes, do you want to know about Jesus? I would have said, yeah. Yeah, please. You see, here's the thing we have to ask ourselves. If we're going to have the same priority of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, how, how are we influencing people towards him? Are we intentional about that? Please don't wear a striper t-shirt. It doesn't really help. But don't fear the loudmouth bully. Don't <laughs> fear the flirtatious fool. Point them to Jesus. Jesus' priority was to help people to know him. He wanted to lead them to him. Now, lastly, quickly, the last bit. And because when Jesus says this, what happens in verse 33 is, and they said to him, the, the disciples of John the Pharisees said to Jesus, well, hey, the disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, now, listen, this is important because Jesus says something really important about fasting. Follow me. In verse 34, Jesus answers them. He says, can, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, obviously not. You, you don't go to a wedding and fast. You go to a wedding and feast, Right? He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, when he says the bridegroom taken away, this is kind of the first hint at the cross, the first hint that he'll be rejected by the Jews. But also, here's what he's saying, okay? He's not rejecting the spiritual discipline of fasting. It's a good thing. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 
uh, he taught about this, um, the idea of fasting. He says, when you fast, you know, just don't do it in front of everybody. Just don't, you know, toot your own horn, basically. He didn't say if you fast. He said when. The expectation of Jesus is that we'd still be involved in that kind of spiritual discipline. Because the point of fasting is twofold. One, it's for us to give something up so that we can give it to somebody else, which we forget about that bit. I'm going to not eat dessert for a month, and I'm going to save that money, or not, not buy coffee for a month, uh, and I'm going to save that money. I'm going to give it to the poor. I'm going to give it to this mission. I'm going to do something like that. It's to, it's, to, it's to sacrifice to give to someone else. That's part of the fast in Isaiah 58 talks about. But also, listen, part of fasting is us to make sure that we're developing above all things a hunger for God, an appetite for God himself. It's a great, it's a great discipline. Here's the problem. The problem is when we add that to religious traditions, got to fast twice a week. You got to fast uh, every year for this amount of time. You got to make sure you do it this way. You got to make sure you do it that way. Sometimes we actually lose our appetite for God. And oftentimes we lose our appetite for God, not just because it's like, oh, it's too hard. I don't want that discipline. It can be that, and that's to our shame. But also, listen, it can be because we're kind of going, I feel full of my own self righteousness. So it's important to recognize Jesus here is not rejecting spiritual disciplines, he's confronting religious expectations. And saying, no, this, you guys got this all wrong. It's also important to notice when he uses the term bridegroom here. Now, in the Old Testament, that was used often as a metaphor between the God of Israel and Israel, their relationship. That God would, would woo her as a, as a man would woo his bride. And, and God will be faithful and covenant to her, uh, even if she's unfaithful to him. That God has that kind of marriage commitment to his people but really, it wasn't connected to the work of the Messiah. So again, this is Jesus doing something that's going to really be mind-blowing to them. But he continues by giving them, it says in verse 36, and he also told them a parable, but he actually kind of gives two, two metaphors that make one point. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and, the, uh, and the, uh, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Kind of common sense, actually. If you take a new piece of cloth and you tie it, you try to patch an old piece of cloth to it, you've ruined the new piece of cloth, and guess what? You also end up ruining the old, because once you wash it, it shrinks and it rips, makes the rip worse. But he also says this. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Again, just kind of common sense. Wine ferments, it expands, and so you use a new wine skin, and then that expands with the fermentation, and then that's the way it's meant to be. If you put new wine in an old wine skin, it's already expanded as much as it can, so what's going to happen? You ruin the wine skin and the wine. And he says, no one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says, the old's good. Now, what's he saying here? Listen, Jesus wanted to say to these guys, listen, I'm not destroying the old. I don't want the old destroyed. I'm beginning the new. This is the beginning of the new covenant. The new way that God has, is committing himself, the final and full way that God is committing himself to bring heaven to earth, to make us right with him. This is what Jesus is saying. He's also kind of putting something out there for them. He's saying to him, listen, 
If you are satisfied with your old self-focused religion, you're not going to want me. See, listen, this is where we have to think about this. And I want us to do some soul searching while we get ready to, to remember what the Lord's done for us. I want us to check our inner Pharisee. To be honest about what our priorities are as professing Jesus followers. Do, do, do we have the same kind of priorities that Jesus does? Do we prioritize forgiveness over here and now deliverance from suffering? Do, do we prioritize reaching sinners over pleasing religious people? Do we prioritize the new covenant over the old covenant, or at least our old traditions? Do we have his priorities? Where do we need to forsake our self-righteous priorities and just simply follow Jesus? See, for some of you who are listening to this, who are watching this, for some of you, it's simply about saying, I need to have a new beginning. I need to start fresh. For some of you, it might be, this is the initial starting fresh. This is the first time that you are really going, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's happening for the first time. For others of us, it's saying, Lord, starting fresh again. I want to start fresh. The good news is his mercies, God's mercies are new every morning and they endure forever. That we can be reprioritized. We can start over. And he will, as, as they rightly said on the kids' video today, preach it. He will change us from the inside out. Amen. So glad to be with you guys today. Can't wait uh, for things to open up. Let's keep praying. Let's keep praying for our governments to have wisdom, for those who are, who are coming up with both the vaccines and the distribution of the vaccines are protected and blessed with wisdom, that we can get everyone vaccinated, we can get as safe as we can, and we can open up. And let's keep remembering those people that are, are still completely isolated, reaching out to them. Let's not forget them. We long to be open again, but it's going to be a long time when, until everyone can be together. So let's not, as things open up, forget those who still can't come. Amen? Bless you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we will see you online next week. God bless you.